Now, guys, uh, grab your Bibles. And before I read you the text, let me just introduce it this way. Um, we're starting a new series today. And um, it, it promises to be a long one and, um, very frankly, a hard one. I dare say it probably won't sell well. You know, um, we did a series in the spring on the family. Um, and we did a, we followed that with a series on spiritual depression. And those are both user friendly. This series is not. But in a very real sense, it's more user friendly than anything you've ever heard. But, and I'll try to explain that later. But the, the, uh, the family series was this, was, was aimed at family health. The, uh, the depression series was uh, aimed on, at, aimed at our emotional health. Well, this series is aimed at our spiritual health. And I, I uh, hope it will indeed produce or increase that. So you follow in your copies of God's Word as I read just a portion of the story I want to tell you. We'll start at verse 15 of First um, Kings 16. You follow as I read to the end of the chapter. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken... He went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and for his sin, which he committed making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, that he made, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. To make him king and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni the son of Ganath. So Tibni died and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he fortified the hill and called the name of the city uh, that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with the fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served at Baal and worshipped him. 
He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Guys, I want to read you one verse. I wrote it here in my notes. Um, Out of the book of Proverbs. This is chapter 28, verse 2. It says this. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But when a man of understanding and knowledge, but, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. You know what that means? Um, essentially, it says simply this. That political instability is brought on by sin. Store that away. Let me ask you another question. Um, do you know why we study history? Well, it's nice to know the heritage and uh, of our forebears and all that business. But one of the reasons, perhaps the main reason that we study history is so that we can learn the lessons from history so that we won't, we won't repeat them. Um, you've heard that famous saying about those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Well, this series, I, I want to start this series with a, a look, a brief look, uh, at some history from Israel. That is, a little bit of, little portion of Israel's history in the hope that we might learn some lessons and avoid some of the pitfalls into which Israel fell. Okay? <clears throat> now, guys, um, one of the defining moments in the history of Israel, I hope you still got your Bibles open, um, is a civil war. It wasn't the only civil war that Israel ever had, but it was a very significant civil war. Let me tell you when this one occurred and a little bit about it. By the way, this is uh, uh, explained to you in chapter 12. We read from chapter 16, but this is in chapter 12, if you'd like to take a look. You know, the first king was Saul of Israel, was Saul. The second was David. And then David's son Solomon ruled in Israel. And then Solomon died and his son Rehoboam becomes king. The citizens come to Rehoboam. By the way, this is first... First Kings 12. Uh, the citizens come to Rehoboam and they say, listen, if you will make our loads a little bit lighter, we'll serve you forever. But I mean, it's awfully heavy under your daddy, so if you'll make it lighter, we'll serve you forever. And the, <clears throat> the champion of the oppressed peoples was a guy by the name of Jeroboam. Well, Rehoboam decides that he is going to side with the impetuosity of youth. And so he says, no, I'm going to make it even harder. And so... A brief civil war ensues, um, brought to an end, not by either one of the armies, but by God. It's in uh, chapter uh, 12, 22 through 24. God says, stop that thing. And so they both go back to their, their prospective camps, or respective camps. And so what we end up with are now two nations. We got two nations now, guys. Israel has been split Not in half, but in the north, there are ten tribes uh, being led by Jeroboam. The capital city is Samaria. 
in the south, there, the capital city is Jerusalem. And uh, there's only two tribes in that one, led by Rehoboam. The northern kingdom is now called Israel. And the southern kingdom is now called Judah. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what happens next became a proverb, a, a, a byword in the history of Israel. It's recorded for you in chapter 12, verses 26 and following. What happens is this. Jeroboam, who is the king in the north, decides, oh my, I got a problem. If I don't do something about this, I'm going to lose all my people. Because we got all these festivals that are, these religious festivals that are taking place centered in Jerusalem in the south. So if I, if I don't do something, my people up here in the north are going to go down to Jerusalem to, to uh, experience all these festivals and they're going to end up staying. And I'm going to lose my population because they're all going to Jerusalem to enjoy these festivals. And so what he does then, and we're told this in chapter 12, beginning at verse 25, he creates an entirely, a whole new substitute national religion. And he, notice in, um, oh, yes, verse 28, uh, so the king took counsel and made calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods. Golden calves become the official state-sponsored cult of Israel. And if that weren't enough, we're told in verse 31 that he appoints a whole new set of priests that are not from the tribe of Levi. And so he's created this whole new religion, and that becomes known as the sins of Jeroboam. That's the, that's the proverb. It's mentioned some 21 times in the span of basically two books. The sins of Jeroboam. He walked in the sins of Jeroboam. He committed the sins of Jeroboam. He did not flee from the sins of Jeroboam. God doesn't let him get away with that very long. Um, chapter 13, we find God cutting across the grain of Jewish history. And he arrives in the person of a prophet. This is chapter 13. This unnamed prophet shows up with Jeroboam and he pronounces basically a thus saith the Lord. And he, he prophesies against the new altar that Jeroboam had built. And the altar splits and Jeroboam reaches out to try and grab the, the unnamed prophet and his hand withers up. And then the, the, the prophet flees and he goes to a house of a guy that he wasn't supposed to go to and he ultimately dies. It's a, it's a very odd story. But no matter how odd you might consider the story to be, apparently the narrator of the story thinks that at least Jeroboam should have listened to this prophet because we're told um, in verse 33 and 34 of chapter 13, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people 
any who would be ordained to be priests of the high places. And this sin became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. And then in chapter 14, we get this blood-curdling prediction (coughs) actually made to Jeroboam's wife (coughs) when in verse 15 of chapter 14, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. The notorious sins of Jeroboam. Now, could I read you that verse from Proverbs once again? When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. What takes place from this point forward is the fulfillment of Proverbs chapter 28, verse verse 2. This kingdom of Israel is now split into half, into, into two halves. And the sin of Jeroboam gives rise to absolute geopolitical chaos. Israel is an idolatrous nation and the result... The result is predictable. Just like the Proverbs said. Guys, just a, just a couple of illustrations of the geopolitical chaos. For instance, over the course of the next six decades, about 58 years, the house of Jeroboam is destroyed. His son follows him. His name is Nadab. He is assassinated by a guy by the name of Basha. Basha rules for a little while, and then his son takes over. His his name is Elah. Elah is assassinated by Omri. Omri rules for seven days. When, excuse me, um, uh, Zimri rules for seven days. Omri, who is the general of the army, hears of what's taking place over in the city of Tirzah. The army then makes him the king. They march to Tirzah, the city, besiege the city, and Omri goes into the, to the palace, burns the thing down, and dies. By the way, Elah, who was assassinated by Omri, look at chapter um, uh, 50, 16, verse 9. But his servant Zimri, commander of half the his chariots, conspired against him when he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza. Guys, I know it's hard to keep track of all these names. But you have, you have a king by the name of Elah, whose father took the kingdom by assassinating the previous king. Elah is a drunk. He's in a, an, an, a, a, a house of an idol, drinking himself into oblivion. He then is assassinated by Zimri, who reigns for seven days. The army makes a new king, uh, makes Omri the, Omri the king. He comes back and Destroy Zimri. Zimri only reigns seven days. Omri reigns 12 years. Four of which are spent fighting a civil war against a guy by the name of Tibni. You see what's happening? Do you see it, ladies and gentlemen? When a land transgresses, there are many rulers. 
Oh, but we're not done. Go back with me, if you will, to the when when Elah was king, and he's assassinated by Omri. Excuse me, he's assassinated by by Zimri. Omri is the king or is the general of the army. He's over in a city called Gibbethon, sieging the city of Gibbethon. Let me tell you a little bit about Gibbethon. Gibbethon was a part of Israel, but it had been overtaken by Philistia. Israel was trying to get a piece of their property back, and they had sieged Gibbethon for some 24 years. When when the army headed up by Omri hears what's taken place back in Tirzah, they appoint Omri their king, they mount up and head back home to fight Zimri. They leave um, Gibbethon, never to return again. And um, the city of Gibbethon, which used to be a part of Israel, is now annexed by Philistia. After 24 years of sacrifice and blood and death, they walk away without gaining anything. Now, here, here's the point. The land mass owned by Israel is shrinking because the nation of Israel has become an idolatrous nation. Just like, just like Proverbs said. Then one other thing. Um, not only does each new generation bring a, a new dynasty along with it, but each new dynasty is worse than the last dynasty. Stay with me. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, continues in the sons of his father, Jeroboam, and Basha assassinates him. I've already told you that. The same thing happens to Basha's son, Elah, who is also assassinated. And as I said, Elah is in the house of an idol, getting himself drunk. But then he, he is killed by Zimri. And um, Omri comes back to kill him. But we're told, guys, look at chapter 16, verse 25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. So not only do we have a new dynasty, we have a new level of wickedness. And then Omri dies. His son takes over. His son is named Ahab. Notice what the text says about Ahab, verse 31 of chapter 16. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he, that is Ahab, took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 33. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were for him. Do you see what's happening? Do you see it, ladies and gentlemen? We have got political chaos on our hands. And every time there's a new change in the dynasty, sin gets deeper and deeper. And and, and the one dynasty sins more than all of the dynasties before it. And then it gets replaced with a new dynasty. And this dynasty sins more than the dynasty that was before it. And we are left at the end of chapter 16 
with Ahab going and taking his wife from one of the daughters of the Sidonians. Her name is Jezebel. And the both of them lock arms and go worship Baal. And then they begin to slaughter as best they can all of the prophets of Yahweh. Did you get all that? A flood of evil has broken loose in Israel. A flood of such alarming dimensions that, that it appears as though Satan would succeed in beating down everything holy by this, this inundation of, of idolatry and impiety and iniquity. Where is God? Where is he in all of this? Why doesn't he do something? What, 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 what are you going to do, God? I mean, God, are you not going to bring a solution to this? Tell us, God, what do you see? What do you see is the greatest need now. What are you going to do, God? Into this chaos. What does God bring? A king? No. A military leader? No. A philosopher? No. Look at it, ladies and gentlemen. Chapter 17. Verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives. Do you know what God does, ladies and gentlemen? He sends a prophet. Into this political upheaval, God sends a prophet. God intervenes with a sonic boom by sending a prophet who comes and says, Thus saith the Lord. These, these prophet guys that we're going to look at in this series, they, they, they speak and act as if the sky is falling because they're so alarmed at the evil that is in their country. The spiritual crisis in Israel is addressed by God sending someone who will simply face the evil and say, Thus saith the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, the crux of Israel's problems is not to be found in her political fortunes. Or, or, or the various battles that she fought, or the strategic alliances which she entered into. The crux of her problems are to be found in the contest that is being waged between true false, true prophecy and false prophecy. That is Yahweh versus Baal, the true God versus the false gods. Israel 
needs to hear from God. That's what God thought at least. Because he sent a prophet. In, in, in speaking, the, the, the prophets, they, they stand with their backs to God. And they, they bring a certain message that God has given them. Making the invisible God audible. The task of the prophet is to simply stand in the way of this mighty stream of evil. And, and hold it back with mere words. God's words. God gives a prophet. Because a prophet is a man into whose mouth he has placed a message. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the need of this hour. The prophet's job was to deliver a message. He was an accredited spokesman for God. He was a man who burned with, with righteousness and other people gathered to watch him burn. The prophet is a, is a, is a scream in the night while all the nation of Israel sleeps. What these people need is the true God and true words from him. And so, God sends a prophet, a man who wept while everybody else was laughing, a man who stood in the presence of people and denounced their sin, a man who stood in the face of a mighty onslaught of evil and says, Thus saith the Lord. Guys, you know why we study history? We study history so that we perhaps can learn from the mistakes of our forebears and not commit those same mistakes and thus suffer the same consequences. So, what about America? America, where Christianity no longer shapes the the social or the political or the moral landscape. In fact, we have been so marginalized that we are lumped into the same big heap with other terrorists. And perhaps the, the, the two biggest reasons of America's decline is her, is her commitment to narcissism and relativism. You know what relativism is, don't you guys? Relativism is, is simply a denial that there's anything that exists like absolute truth. Our national creed is that there's no such thing as true and false. You know what narcissism is? It's just an intoxicated commitment to self, self-satisfaction, self-admiration, self-protection, self-promotion. And then, and then there's the church. church that is fast becoming as relativistic and narcissistic as anyone else in this country. Ladies and gentlemen, if the recent data is true, 
The statistic is 7 out of 10 professing Christian people no longer believe that absolute truth exists. Look down your row. 7 in 10 of you refuse to acknowledge that there is such a thing as absolute truth. You're a relativist. And is so often the case, or the folly that infests the world has overtaken the church. And the church suffers and bleeds because no one is willing to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. I'll read you a quote, folks. I found this in the New Yorker magazine. I'm reading the New Yorker magazine because my daughter Megan thought I should read. I, I, I don't know why I'm reading the thing. It's just, but maybe this is why. I found this quote in the New Yorker magazine. Unfortunately, I forgot to write down the guy who said it. But he says this. The preacher, instead of looking out upon the world, looks out on public opinion, trying to find out what the public would like to hear. Then he tries his best to duplicate that and bring his finished product into a marketplace in which others are trying to do the same. The public, turning to our church culture to find out about the world, discovers there is nothing there but its own reflection. We have nothing to say to a world that's gone mad. What are we supposed to do, ladies and gentlemen? How is the church to respond to our present evil age? What does God think is the greatest need of our generation? I propose this. Thus saith the Lord. The church is the church must rediscover her prophetic voice. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, ignorance of God lies at the root of all of the church's impotence as well as the nation's ignorance or the nation's evil. What, what, what if the church does regain her prophetic voice? What if, what if she does? Then, ladies and gentlemen, then God's people will be content to let God be true and all other men be liars. And we will find submission to the sovereign Lord of the universe, our absolute delight. If we are wise, we will recommit ourselves as a church to expository preaching, God-centered worship, a loving fellowship, pastoral care, costly discipleship, global evangelism, and practical compassion. But none of that is going to matter. Unless we recognize our need, our daily need, for the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Our church will never be a city set on a hill until she confesses her sin and her need for a crucified, resurrected, interceding Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, God is only known through Jesus Christ. One more thing and I'm done. What does God think about your situation? Forget America. Forget the church. What about your situation? Your marital, con- your marital conflicts, your marital chaos, the, um, the uh, uh, familial complexities that drive you nuts. Just making decent decisions in the face of the complexities of life. What does God think your situation needs? Well, I can say this, ladies and gentlemen. This may be shocking to you, but it may not be another Bible study. What's needed is for all of us to hear true words from God about God. A clear, prophetic, confident, thus saith the Lord. That's what will bring order out of the chaos. Guys, I am calling you and me and us to a determined, humble submission to a thus saith the Lord. That is a life governed by the word of God. You see, I think our fear is if that we ever were to submit ourselves to God like this, we would be miserable. That we would be enslaved. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. I am not calling you to submit to me. I am not calling you to submit to this church. I am not even calling you to submit to the Bible. I am calling you to submit to the God of the Bible. And no man has ever regretted having yielded himself to the God of this book. Guys, I make no claim to be a prophet in the Elijah sense. My role, as I understand it, is to, is to stand with my back to God and to simply deliver to you lovingly what God has said to us. And then collectively, we give voice to a glad submission. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, no need you have is bigger than that. And in that sense, there's nothing more practical than what you're going to hear in the coming weeks. Your contentment is riding on your yieldedness to the God of this book. The, the losses and the crosses of life don't seem to make as much difference once we know something about this God. So what do we intend to do in case we do get this knowledge of God? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn our face to God brokenhearted over our own sins and the sins of our nation. And tearfully plead with this God to heal this mess we're in. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not saying that we're going to save America. 
afraid America is too far gone for that. But we will at least have a message of hope for anyone who wants to listen to it. A message that says to them that God is eager to receive anyone who will trust his Christ. No wavering. No hedging. No stuttering. Simply. Christ and him crucified. That's what we have to offer you. That's what we have to offer the world. Father, forgive us. I guess the first step that Gracie Van needs to take is to, to, to ask you to forgive our commitment to mush and self-promotion. Oh, God, would you raise up a a congregation, a group of congregations who refuse to tamper with the truth any longer and will say with, with a clear, confident, prophetic voice, Thus saith the Lord. Father, uh, it, is, it is not an easy task to withstand the onslaught of evil that is around us. Would you ready us for the uh, the losses and the crosses that will surely come when people are committed to speak only that which has come from your gracious lips. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met the Savior, would you call them to see or cause them to see that there is no solution whatsoever available to them except in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake. In His name we pray.